0: now for raising the bar greater rva's premier law talk radio show call into the show with your stories
1: and questions at 804-454-1366 804-454-1366 Good morning, and welcome to Raising the Bar, Greater RBA's Law Talk Radio Show. This is your host, Colleen Quinn of Locke and Quinn. And this morning, we're going to talk about the Me Too movement, sexual assault and the law. Where are we now? Where are we headed? Why are so many women coming forward? And we're going to talk uh, in an interview with Susie Lavarkey and Valerie LaRue, who are from the Virginia Poverty Law Center and both specialize in different areas of sexual assault. I'm really excited to have both of you on the show this morning. Good morning. Good
0: Good morning, Colleen.
1: So um, for folks that um, are not familiar with Raising the Bar, if you go to the Raising the Bar website, www.raisingthebarlawtalk.com, we have all of the resources there for both pro bono and free resources. And the Virginia Poverty Law Center is actually listed there as one of those resources that's available. So these two ladies do a lot of hard work Um, for a lot of uh, folks that don't have the same access to uh, the law that others might um, have that can afford it. Remember that uh, Raising the Bar is sponsored by Locke & Quinn, and we are conveniently located in the Willow Lawn Shopping Center near a plethora of dining experiences, Mm -hmm. Um, and we we practice uh, various areas of the law, family law, personal injury, um, malpractice, employment, estate planning, and of course, sexual assault is one of them. And I actually run a women's injury law center where we specialize in looking for civil recoveries um, for sexual assault and other acts of violence. So um, the three of us are well equipped to talk about the Me Too movement this morning. And so Sheila, why don't you first tell us a little bit about what you do at the Virginia Poverty Law Center and um, the areas of sexual assault that you cover?
0: So, just a little bit about Virginia Poverty Law Center specifically. Yes. We're the statewide support for all of the local legal aids in Virginia. So there are nine main um, regional offices. So legal aid, for those of you who don't know, is civil legal assistance, which which means um, for things that you that are not a crime, where you may need representation but cannot afford an attorney. Um, Because you don't make enough of an income, if you meet the income eligibility requirements, you can apply for legal aid. Right. So the only issue is that legal aid offices all over the state and the types of things they would handle would be, for example, in family law, maybe divorce, custody, trying to get a protective order, those types of issues issues. If you can't afford to hire an attorney, you would go and see if you're eligible for local legal aid representation. But the problem is so many local legal aid offices are overwhelmed by by the many people who would be eligible.
1: They are. And um, actually, there is a um, video recording of um, Access to Justice that we did with Marty Wegbright and and, uh, um, Ali Fannin, where we talked about all the resources that are out there and um, what was something that somebody might qualify for versus not and right. the difference between civil and criminal and right. how in a criminal case the court might appoint an attorney. Um, so that's a really good program um, as an adjunct to, th- to this program as well that kind of explains. Um, and the two of you actually helped put together that resource list with me um, that's that's on the, the site.
0: Right. So with that, given that overwhelming nature of people needing these resources, I would say Valerie and I and all of the people we work with at Virginia Poverty Law Center get calls from folks who say, I've tried to get into legal aid, but they just can't take me right now. Please help me with this issue. Right. So I work on domestic and sexual violence issues. Um, Valerie works on family and child welfare issues. We have a consumer attorney, health care, public benefits, all of the types of issues that you would imagine affect um, most people, especially low-income people. Okay,
1: yeah. and Valerie, you've got a little bit of background um, in the uh, the sexual assault area as well. I understand. Yeah, so I um, haven't been at VPLC as long as
2: uh, Sashila, but... um, She's a a (laughs) long-standing. It's actually
0: been 10 years. This is the longest I've ever been in any job. (laughs) (laughs) So
2: um, I've only been there a year and a half, um, but uh, I did... uh, Uh, get started in this field by working at the state coalition of sexual assault crisis centers, which is now, um, Virginia, the Virginia domestic and sexual violence action Alliance. So they're the statewide organization that works on policy issues, um, and runs a, a statewide hotline for people who are in crisis, um, does trainings around sexual assault and domestic violence issues. Um, so I worked there for about six years, um, and then after that, I was a public defender, so I've sort of seen. Oh yeah, you've seen it <laughs> these from issues all from different both angles, mm-hmm. and I
1: understand that you're familiar with um, some of the, the sexual assault issues involving children, including children in foster care. So that gives a, a completely different perspective um, on on things, because we're not hearing from children necessarily as part of the Me Too movement. We're hearing more from the adults, and maybe things that happened when they were children. Um, but there's still the children out there that that. Um, don't necessarily have a voice and you're that voice for them in some ways. And, and that's true. And a lot of children are are afraid to speak up and
2: don't speak up until they become adults. And right. so that it's a huge problem that is sort of under the radar for that reason. Right.
1: So, Sheila, let's get, um, we're going to talk about um, certain things that you do in your job mm-hmm. um, and the landscape of um, the law governing sexual assault. But I kind of want to get to um, the, the heart of a certain question that's on everyone's minds. Um, why now? Why the Me Too movement now?
0: Right. I think reality is that people, men and women and children, have experienced sexual assault forever. Right. We see statistics, one
1: out of three, one out of four. One, right. I mean, it, it. no matter what st- statistics are that you look at, they seem, it seems to be a pretty big percentage.
0: Right. But I think with the outcome of the most recent presidential election, and we have a president who— on national television, said he just grabs women by the blank. it's recorded. record it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to me, I know that he backtracked on it and tried to couch it in locker room, so-called locker room talk, but that's an admission of a sexual assault, if you ask me. Um, and there's this atmosphere, in, in my opinion, this is just my opinion, right. but if we had President Clinton as opposed to President Trump, I have a feeling people— especially women might feel more like I'm getting I'm being represented right in leadership I don't feel this urge to express what happened to me and I think there's a lot of outrage right now not to mention we were just talking about the fact that we have a president that just is not diplomatic does not think before he talks he just says what he thinks so I feel like there's this atmosphere of I need to tell what happened to me, right. This is a reality. It's a fact. I can't hide it anymore. yeah,
1: I mean, regardless of um, any political views, um you look at Bill Clinton and he got in trouble with Monica Lewinsky. so you know, he had his mm, he had his you know kind of secrets or dirt in his closet too, right. and um but he wasn't he didn't have the same level of um, outspokenness and and candor. And right. so um you know, one you might say one benefit of Trump is the fact that he, Is very candid, you know. I mean, it's right out there, and I think a lot of folks are kind of like, "Well, if the president can do it, so can I." And why am I now keeping certain things private or secret when I can be candid too? You know, and so we're we're kind of that, and I think also the social media and the the, just the, the ability for people to pop on YouTube and pop on Facebook and just you know things go viral, and so we have. Um, systems in place now that kind of allow these momentums uh, or movements, you know, to occur.
0: Exactly. And then I think when you have the first person or the first big issue, like with Bill Cosby, think about all of the women over decades that have been coming forward. It's as if you've I think you feel safe. Someone broke that barrier. Right. Now I can tell my story. I don't have to be the first one, the trailblazer. Exactly. Exactly. So let's talk a little bit, um, Sashila,
1: so about how do the issues of sexual assault come up in your work? Um, how do you work on a day-to-day basis? What are some of kind of the examples that you face?
0: So I would say, as I mentioned before, a lot of times people who cannot get into legal aid will end up calling me. And I'll talk with folks. You, I mean, less so now I've found fewer people are calling and actually leaving messages on my voicemail for the past, I would say past year or so. But it it used to be daily oh. I would get calls from folks who were legal aid eligible but couldn't get legal aid representation. So um, – I found that folks, most of the time, they are calling about domestic violence issues, but often they're calling about sexual assault issues as well. And um, one of the things I found was that people were calling saying, I don't have legal status in this country, and this is what happened to me. I was sexually assaulted, or my husband was abusive to me, but I'm scared. To right. Say anything because I'm I don't have legal status, and my abuser's telling me, or I believe I'm going to be deported if I report to the police. Right. So there's that kind of fear, right? Um, which abusers can use as part of their toolkit to keep victims from reporting crimes. Right. I
1: think folks that aren't um, citizens, that don't have green cards, are especially susceptible. Absolutely. um, As are the women that are in human trafficking, you know, that are are, uh, basically held there by being addicted to drugs, et cetera. Right. Um, You know, and I do adoption um, work, too, as you know, and um, I've uh, done a number of adoptions of Women that have been uh, snuck over the border and raped by—they the, say the the hyenas. Actually, that you know the not the not the animal hyenas, but <laughs> right. referring to um, the the folks that have the transporters. Yes, exactly, and um, and even they are so reluctant to come forward and place their child for a. Adoption, you know, because they're so scared of the court system, so scared of being mm. deported, so scared of saying anything about how it was that they got pregnant, right? Um, you know, but know also that if they do the the adoption, they're they're able to put their child in the United States and make them a U.S. citizen. Um, but that fear, um, sure. I, I know that I've seen it myself, and it's it's um,
0: it's really hard on those folks. Sure. So from those calls, I found that. I would say about half or more, whether from victims themselves or from advocates or frankly, law enforcement. All different types of folks call me to get, um, to brainstorm and to get answers. Right. Um, so from that, I found that maybe half or more were not just about domestic or sexual violence. They were about the person's immigration status. Okay. So with the help of a private law firm that focuses focuses on immigration law, Chala Law Offices, uh, Lakshmi Chala used to be on Virginia Poverty Law Center's board. And she and I had been talking for years about how can we do something? How can we do something? So we started a fledgling immigration clinic free legal yes. clinic for um undocumented or underdocumented meaning like they might have a visa that's about to expire right um to see if they qualify for certain types of visas and there are some that are available for victims of violent crime like sexual assault so for as an example um there is a type of visa called a trafficking visa if people are brought to this country um, against their will, force fraud or coercion to engage in either labor or sex trafficking. So with sex trafficking, we're talking about prostitution. Right. And um, I actually am about to file a trafficking visa on behalf of a client. um, And she was brought to this country So, the really insidious nature that I'm learning about trafficking is that the people who are the traffickers are often the boyfriend of the victim. So, so there's like a grooming of sorts that's involved of of, um, meeting a woman, usually, and falling in love, all of the things that go along with that spending time together Um, And that trust building and then saying, oh, I want to bring you to the United States, um, but you're going to have to pay me back and... You know, I want you to have sex with my friend. It starts that way, and then it gets into serious prostitution. I know of, um, if you can believe this, a trafficking victim who was forced to have sex with up to 100 men a day. Wow. I can't even imagine. Wow. Um, I mean, uh, sorry, not a day, a week. a 100 okay. men a week. That's still amazing. I mean, Yeah. 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 So, I mean, it it just boggles the mind that this this is happening under our noses. Right, but that
1: honeymooning, that cycle of abu- I mean, it's it's not that dissimilar from right. domestic violence situations, you know, where we see somebody fall in love and 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 they're actually still in in love with the person yes. that's
0: putting them through this. That so, they might have a child or more than right. one child with that trafficker, um not to mention the fact that there's drugs involved, people forced to take drugs or, to, or you know, ingest alcohol. So there's the substance use disorder aspect of it as well. and the fact of you're in this foreign country, you don't speak the language. you don't have any of your family members there you are scared to tell your family because there's a shame involved, especially with sex trafficking. So it's so complicated and really feeds into traffickers being able to use people like commodities. You know, there's
1: a common theme of dependency that runs through all sexual assault cases. Um, Whether it's the the boss, the supervisor, there's the dependency on your job. So you're afraid to say something because you're afraid that you're going to lose your job. Um, If it's uh, in a school teacher type situation. You're afraid to do anything because you're going to get the bad grade. Um, and then it gets even worse. And the dependency that you're talking about is right. an extreme dependency. But there's that complete dependency on your abuser. Right. You know, and we see it For too. For food,
0: clothing, shelter, right. all these basic needs.
1: Right. And um, and we see that parallel in the domestic violence arena too, where um, somebody um, is dependent upon their their spouse or their abuser or their, their partner um, for all those basic needs, um, and and then it's just basically accelerated or exacerbated when we look at the the trafficking victims because now there's the dependency on that person for staying in the United States right. as well. Um, exactly, you know, and you throw in um, some addiction there, um, and if they're addicted to some uh, chemical substance or drugs or whatever, now right. they're dependent upon the abuser to also as their supply source.
0: Plus, there's this concept of the extreme hardship in going back to your home country. Many, many trafficking victims actually want to go, especially especially sex trafficking victims. It's like they want to rewind their lives and go back to their home country, but they can't because right. they won't be accepted. They'll be ostracized. Um, they won't be able to support themselves. They don't want their families to be retaliated against because of, the shame brought on the family by them. Right. So they don't often tell their families what's happening here in the United States. Um, they just act like everything's fine and my, oh, my boyfriend is wonderful and he bought me this, you know, that kind of thing. It's, just, it's that same shame
1: and, you know, uh, not wanting, there's a certain sense of guilt. Um, somehow I put myself in this situation right. um, and I, 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 I I can't seem to be able to tell anybody about it because um, then it's acknowledging that I let myself somehow get into this this exactly. situation. It's real. The psychology behind it is really fascinating. So you have um, uh, worked in that area of the law, especially um, with the, the visas that uh, help with the trafficking situation. And I know you've also worked in a number of other areas of the law that impact sexual assault. Right. So tell us a little bit about recent laws that have come into play that mm-hmm. you've worked on um, to help sexual assault situations. And then let's then we're going to talk a little bit about uh, where are the problems still and where do what do we still need to fix going forward?
0: Right. So one of the things I, I was trying to think about what's happened over the past several years, especially the past ten years. so, one thing that has happened um, through the Virginia legislature is more notification about what trafficking is and posting notifications at truck stops, at um, restaurants, at um, strip clubs, you know, at many different places where anybody can um, come into contact with a trafficking victim. So... It's it's actually m- truckers that have noticed weird situations with a young woman and an older man. Um, and that's where I think in Virginia that notification started at the truck stops. Right. Those are—these truckers have reported these— um, weird situations and then police can investigate. It's not just a weird situation, it's a trafficking victim.
1: Yeah, and um, we had a speaker at one of the women's bar functions who basically made us more aware of just watching when we stay at a hotel or a motel what's going on around us because oftentimes that's another environment where you see things that don't quite... seem right. You know,
0: Exactly. <laughs> um,
1: people coming in and out of um, men in particular coming in and out of a particular room and, you know, maybe seeing on occasion a young female at some points or you know, people guarding the door. So different things right. that kind of made kind of make you think a little bit more about what's going on there. And, exactly. and yeah. is it something that maybe we should alert somebody you know, right. to what's going on. There's now, a you,
0: bill in the legislature this year, actually, that I expect to pass that will require um, healthcare care providers to post that notification about what is human trafficking. And if you spot human trafficking, here's the hotline to
1: call. Right. And it's not just um, a problem of folks being brought from other countries. It's a problem in the United States, Absolutely. you know. And then um, there is also, even if it's not trafficking, we still have the problem of Sexual assaults as part of domestic violence. So I know you've done some work on the um, Virginia's um, Crime Victim and Witness Rights Act, and I and some of the additional notifications in in that act. Um, and basically, can you talk a little bit about uh, the the requirements that somebody be provided the summary and and given more notifications of what's happening in in their case, et cetera, including notifications with obtaining a protective order. Um, Talk a little bit, because I know you've worked on that.
0: I've worked on that somewhat tangentially. You can find that information about a victim's bill of rights. Um, I think you can look that up. Google that. Right. Um, And the Virginia Sexual and Domestic Violence Action Alliance, Valerie mentioned that organization, They are a coalition of the 60-plus local domestic and sexual violence programs in Virginia. Um, They work more um, actively on those types of issues. Yeah, so I I would say resort to them to look for that information. But in terms of some of the changes about protective orders over the last 10 years, um, if you remember the Courtney Love case, um, a young student at at UVA— Um, she was basically beaten and killed by an ex-boyfriend who was also a student, um, another UVA student. At the time, if she had wanted to get a protective order because she didn't, she and the ex didn't um, meet the requirement of a family or household member relationship.
1: Correct.
0: She would have had to go and get a warrant for, um, you know, a criminal—ask for a criminal warrant for criminal sexual assault, fear of bodily injury or death, in order to ask for a protective order from general district court. She wouldn't have been able to ask for it from juvenile and domestic relations court, which is very used to family issues, issues of violence among family members, which is called family abuse in Virginia. Right. And the other thing about that, too, um, Sashila, is— If she could go
1: to the juvenile court, that's a more confidential proceeding that is kept under seal. And in that case, um, in order for her to get that protective order, now she has to swear out a criminal warrant. So now she's bringing—and clearly when you have a boyfriend-girlfriend situation and there are issues going on, there's still that fundamental—you have feelings for that person, and you don't necessarily want to put— them in a position of having a criminal record now. And,
0: and ruining his career right. and, and his also, life
1: as a student, et cetera. And now that becomes public if it's in general exactly. district court as opposed to juvenile court. So there are all those different factors. Exactly. So tell us, I know that um, that you
0: worked on uh, on basically helping change that. Yeah, so about, I think it was 2010 or 2011, that the law changed to say when there's an active violence force or threat, That leads to bodily injury or fear of bodily injury, death, or sexual assault, you can get a protective order. You don't need the warrant. You can go the more private juvenile court route. Great. We'll be right back after the break. And remember
1: to call into the show with your questions.
0: Now, back to raising the bar. Call into the show
1: with your stories and questions at 804-454-1366.
0: 804-454-1366.
1: We are back. This is Attorney Colleen Quinn with the law firm of Locke and Quinn, and I also run the Women's Injury Law Center. And this is Raising the Bar, Greater RVA's Law Talk radio show. Today we are talking about the Me Too movement, Uh, sexual assault and the law. Where are we now? Where are we going? And right before the break, um, Sushila Varkey and I were talking about the changes in the law with regard to getting a protective order. And we just wanted to uh, make some clarifications. I know Sushila is going to have to unfortunately leave us, but we still have Valerie here. Um, And so, Sushila, let's just clarify the change in the law with regard to the protective order. We were talking about how you had to swear out the criminal complaint before,
0: if it wasn't a family member, and um and so tell us a little bit about how that changed yes absolutely so that was in 2010 or 2011 that the law changed that if you can show that there was an act of violence force or threat that led to bodily injury or fear of bodily injury sexual assault or death you can ask for a protective order if you don't have the family or household member relationship you go to general district court. The difference is that you just have to show that behavior. You don't need to swear out a criminal criminal warrant. Okay, and we were talking about the Courtney Love situation right. and how sure. she would actually have to bring a,
1: a criminal complaint. Right. Um, but the law so,
0: changed. The law changed, so now anyone— whether you have that family or household member relationship and just I I won't go through all the details of what that is but basically spouse, former spouse, someone that you have a child with, someone that you have lived with as husband and wife um, within the last 12 months. Those are the kinds of people that we were talking about when we talk about family or household member relationship. There are some others that qualify as well but Courtney Love As a UVA student who did not meet any of those criteria with her ex, another student. Um, at the time, she would have had to swear out a criminal warrant. Right. Now, someone in that situation just has to show the be- bad behavior, right? Right. That right. happened. There's a threatening behavior. There's a concern there. Right. They would still have to go to general district court, um, which, as Colleen mentioned, is more of an open court. and Things are not kept confidential. You could have so many people in the courtroom while you're asking for this protective order. Right, which is still intimidating, but but... I guess that's one of the things in the future.
1: There's there's future law to be made. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) So you've got some more work to do. Yes, getting more resources for the
0: courts would be helpful. Right.
1: Speaking of work, I know that you need to go. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Take care. You're in good hands with Valerie. Oh, absolutely. And we've got a caller on the line. We've got Diana from uh, from Richmond. Diana, you are live. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Um, I have a question that you may have already addressed,
2: but what does a person need to do in order to file a protective order against someone that they do not live with? What are the steps that you follow?
1: Well, and thank you so much, Diana, for calling in. Um, I think as as Sushila already indicated, um, if you don't live with the person, um, then you no longer have to swear out the criminal complaint, but you still do have to bring a warrant in general district court and established for, um, the, the court that there is some threatening behavior. And Valerie, you help me out here, um, that there's, that, that there is uh, something that is, um, going to prompt the judge to say, yes, a protective order is needed in this situation. I know I had a case, um, actually where it was, um, just threats made via text I'm going to get you. Um, that's those sorts of statements, um, and in in that case, the judge felt that just the text threats were sufficient. Um, Valerie, um, have you had? experience with some of the things that prompt a judge to issue a protective order.
2: Yeah. So I always recommend that people document all those things, you know, cause usually it's not just a one time incident. And in fact, a judge is much more likely to give a protective order if it's sort of been ongoing. Right. Um, so, uh, um, you know, if you get those texts, don't delete them. Um, if somebody, you know, leaves you a threatening voicemail message, save that. So you want to be able to go to court and show those texts and play those messages. Um, and, I always recommend people keep like maybe a diary because sometimes people will do things that there's no documentation of. So maybe they might come and, um, uh, just yell at them at the door or something like that. So write down on this day, you know, he came to my house and yelled at me or threatened me or whatever it is. Um, because otherwise you're, you're, you go into court and say, well, it happened some time ago. I don't remember, but if you can say it happened on this day, um, and this is what happened and, Then it's much easier. If there have been any reports to the police, also, you know, keep copies of um, um, uh, anything that you get from the police. And, of course, the police will have a record of of your having called.
1: Right. And then I've had um, a case, too, where it was all recorded on um, the, the, the cell phone. And so basically getting permission to take that into court or recording that onto another device um, and I find that the, the court administrators and clerks tend to be very helpful um, in those situations. So, Diana, basically to a- answer your question, if it is um, not a family member or spouse, et cetera, as, for example, the Courtney Love case, um, you would still have to go to general district court and swear out that warrant. Um, but you would not have to actually bring a criminal complaint, which is the change that Sushila was, was pointing out. So does that answer your question, Diana? Yes, ma'am. Great. Thank Thank you you so much for calling into the show. And remember, if anybody does have questions about sexual assault, uh, anything related to the Me Too movement, you can call into the show at 804-454-1366. So I am talking to um, Valerie LaRue of the Virginia Poverty Law Center. And um, uh, Valerie, let's talk a little bit about some of the sexual assault situations that you encounter um, in your your daily work.
2: So... um... So one of the things that I do um, is work with women whose children have been put in foster care, Um, and what I'm finding is that a lot of those women um, have, uh, many times have been, were themselves in foster care, and often were horrifically abused physically and sexually abused as children, sometimes by the originating family, sometimes by foster families. Right. Um, and a lot of them have bounced from foster home to foster home um, where they haven't really established.
1: So they've never really learned how to be a parent. Right. And um, they, they don't know what normal behavior is. There's kind of this, this cycle of abuse that keeps fostering itself. Exactly. And one of the things I think
2: is not very intuitive for people is that if, um, you know, sometimes you think, well, if somebody was themselves abused, they would have a lot of sympathy for someone else who has been abused. And counterintuitively, that's not always the case because sometimes what they've done is they've turned the anger uh, this is a very common thing that happens to women who have been uh, victims of sexual abuse is that they tend to turn their anger at themselves either the that they have believe that somehow it was their fault like you got into that earlier right. um that somehow they brought this on themselves or the abuser has told them that and that's one of the shocking things is that abusers will tell children This is your fault. And so, children, of course, tend to believe when adults tell them. Right. So, they grow up thinking this is my fault. So, if um, a their own child goes into foster care because of abuse, a lot of times they think, oh, well, it was my fault when I got abused, so it's their fault when they were abused. And so there's sort of the cycle of passing on that sort of shame and sense that I must have done something. Um, so trying to um, help people in the foster care system understand that the children you know, may have been sexually abused, but the mom may have been se- sexually abused also, and she may not have ever told anyone that. Right. Um, and she may be behaving in such a way that people are like, Why is she acting this way? And they don't understand there's this underlying problem that she's never addressed um, because she didn't even know that she had the right to address it. And that's one of the things I think. So, going cycling back to the right. Me Too movement, is that I think for the first time that women are being so vocal and coming forward, they've said, I've had enough of this. And that when they come forward, and say, this happened to me, and it was that person's fault, it makes women take a second look at things that happened to themselves and say, oh, maybe it wasn't my fault. Maybe I've been silent with shame all these years, thinking I did something to make this happen, when in fact it was really that other person's fault. And so now they're coming forward, and and I think that we'll start seeing – two things happening. One is, um, you know, more people getting the help that they need. Right. More recognition of how that early childhood trauma affects people and how it gets passed on to the next generation. Um, And then also more accountability um, for the people who are causing these things. They've been getting away with this for a long time because of that shame and secrecy and nobody's, you know, willing to speak up. Now they're being called to account. Oh, yeah. And another thing I think that— Uh, with the the laws that are happening, um, there's a a woman, and I can't remember her last name, but her first name is Erin. She was sexually abused multiple times by two different people when she was a child. And she is on a crusade to get um, Erin's law passed in all 50 states. And so in Virginia this year, we're seeing Erin's law being proposed. Um, Senator Jennifer McClellan has proposed an Erin's law bill. Um, There's been a lot of, it still hasn't passed the Virginia General Assembly yet, and we have about 10 more
1: days. Oh, no. I've got to get you back to work, Valerie. <laughs>
2: um, but that's one of the things, and that would um, mandate that children in schools, as part of the family life curriculum, learn more about what is sexual assault, how, what do you do if someone is sexually assaulting you, you know, how to not sexually assault. Right. You know, because I think we see two different kinds of sexual assaults, and I think that makes things— Um, sort of confusing for people. So we have one kind of sexual assault where people are deliberately going out to hurt someone. We have another kind of sexual assault, and this is the one I think that people feel confused about, where someone doesn't really understand that that's what they're doing, that they're hurting another person. And a part of it is because we don't teach people what are personal boundaries? What is consent? What is okay? What do you need to ask someone, you know, before right. <laughs> proceeding? Um, how do you know that the person wants you to proceed? Or are you just sort of pushing your own agenda thinking, oh, well, this is what I'm supposed to do? So um, sort of putting—Aaron's law would in all 50 states, you know, and and, the, and of course, it's a state-by-state state law, so every law is going to be slightly different. Um, but make it so that people, you know, children, start learning those things. How do I behave respectfully towards other people?
1: Right. And so— You've hit upon a number of um, different interesting issues. One is, um, first of all, the Me Too movement helping with empowerment um, and a sense of I'm not alone. Okay, so there are other people out there, um, which is almost a self-realization of, wow, okay, this isn't right. This isn't normal. Um, And the next thing that you hit upon was education. And I think with the Me Too movement, you know, people are now getting better educated about what is, normal, what what is what should be acceptable, what should not be acceptable? what's not acceptable in the workplace, what's not acceptable in terms of 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 dating uh, behavior um in terms of uh, consenting versus um, not consenting. Um and then another thing is as lawyers, being able to understand some of this the psychology going on, I know that with the the women's Injury law center that I run, um we have a lot of cases where there's 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 sexual assault incidents. And then what will happen is after the sexual assault, the woman will, will, that woman will go out and I've seen it over and over, and she will have more sexual relations and actually be somewhat promiscuous. And there's a whole psychology there of her trying to take ownership of what happened to her. And then that gets used against her um, as if, okay, well, that sexual assault must not have impacted you because now you're going out and you're having sex with other people. Although what she's trying to do is she's trying to justify what happened. She's trying to take ownership of what happened. She's trying to control something that she wasn't able to control in the first place. And the more we we get into the psychology, the the just the harder it becomes to kind of um, understand what's going on. But at least as we get into it, we're able to start to be able to explain things. Um, and as as lawyers, we almost need to kind of rely upon a lot of counselors and psychologists, mm-hmm. et cetera, Very much so. to really understand why is the victim behaving this way. And that ties into what you were saying about that cycle of, of um, sexual assault and uh, domestic violence in the foster care system and folks that have been abused as children and then them repeating it. Um, and breaking it at that education level in the school system is really seems to be one of the, the, the remedies. And I think one of the things that we, um,
2: you know, you earlier referenced how, you know, it seems to be more OK to talk about these things now. Right. Um, partly because we have um, someone in the White House who basically says whatever he thinks. And, you know, and is it okay now for us to come forward and just say, we don't, maybe we don't, maybe (laughs) since there's no shame there, um, the shame that we have often internalized, um, as, as, uh, victims, maybe now we're realizing that's not my shame. And so it's okay for me to talk about it. But I think as a society we've, you know, we've generally made, you know, anything having to do with sex, not okay to talk about and certainly the violent aspects of it. Um, and so I think that, you know, one of the things that the Aaron's law would do is, is create a conversation so that, um, and I think parents need to talk to their children and they need to say things like, it's not okay to touch other people. Um, and, and teach them things like when my son was a child, um, if he, if somebody came up and wanted to hug him and he didn't want to hug them, I, you know, our, our impulse is to say, Oh, hug uncle John. He wants to hug you. Why are you not hugging him? But that sexual abusers use that as their foot in the door to sexual assault. So I think parents need to know that when their children are children and their children, children are very intuitive. And a lot of times, you know, the children will say, so-and-so creeps me out. And children need to be taught that it's okay to listen to that voice saying, so-and-so creeps me out. Um, and parents often, you know, we want to be nice to everyone. And so we think, oh, well, Give them a hug anyway. We really shouldn't be teaching our children that. We should be teaching our children to listen to their inner voice and draw a boundary. Maybe the, the maybe it's just a capricious thing on the part of the child that day. Right. But le- allowing them to have control over their own body and say no, I don't want to hug Uncle John, teaches them that later on, if someone is sexually, uh, you know, crossing their boundaries, that it's okay to say. I don't like this. No, stop. Yeah, And instead, we teach children, if an adult wants to touch you, then you ought to let them touch you. So I think that's one of the things that parents need to start looking at is how are they teaching their children both about touching other people and allowing other people to touch them, even in seemingly non-sexual situations.
1: I had a whole um, conversation with a group of ladies at a a luncheon lately about um, the, the hug, okay? And um, it, it's a real dilemma because it, with the Me Too movement, there's kind of, a, are we going to lose the hug? And children need to be hugged. Um, and and I'm a hugger. And so, but it's really talking about boundaries in terms of, you know, when is a hug wanted? When is it not wanted? And that goes to the whole arena of sexual assault. It's what's welcome versus what's not welcome. Um, and children need to be taught, as you just indicated, about when maybe they they don't want the hug from that person. Maybe that is not a hug that's going to make them feel good throughout the rest of the day. And and we both have experienced that as women. Sometimes when we get the hug, that's a, a little too close, a little too hard, a little too pushed up against, you know, the front chest area, held a little too long, <laughs> you know, as opposed to the quick feel good. Um, I just want to give you a quick hug because, well, you know, you just adopted a baby or, um, you just lost a parent, or you know those sorts of things. and so we really don't want to lose the hug. Um, it's just a matter of kind of identifying when is it welcome, when is it not welcome? And I've even started um, when uh, when I have clients with a happy occasion, um I, I will say um are are you a hugger? Um, i'll I'll try to ask permission mm-hmm. almost, you know, mm-hmm. and um if they're if I get a kind of a mm, I'm not really a hugger, then' i'll, I'll just i'll I'll shake their hand with a two-handed handshake, which is a little bit warmer. Um, but it, it's it's a real dilemma. It's a tough area to try to figure out how do you deal with the yeah. hug,
2: you know? And, and I think, yeah, it's not that we don't want to be touching each other because we do. That's a human need to touch each other. The question is paying attention to the signals that the person is giving you. If right. they're sort of shrinking back, like,
1: uh, I, you know, don't don't force it. it. Yeah. You know, pay
2: attention to what the other person wants. And then it will be nicer for you too, you Right. Know?
1: So working in the area that you work in, um, you've identified um, in particular the, the need for education and you're working on um, that with Jennifer McClellan. And, and so what is exactly the bill that, sh- that's, that you're trying to get passed in the next 10 days? <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm not working too much myself on that particular bill. Okay. I, I
2: know the Action Alliance is really working on it, but a Senate Bill 101. Okay. Um, and I know there are a lot of different groups who are sort of hashing out um, what the final wording will be. Gotcha. Um, but I think that's re- just really important that our children you know, have, have access to information so they don't go out into the world just not knowing, you know, what is okay and what isn't okay. What's okay, where can I put my boundaries? Um, So, yeah, I think we just need more openness and more education. You know, I think there's some people have expressed, oh, well, this didn't happen, you know, 50 or 100 years ago. Well, it did happen,
1: right? Just nobody talked about it. (laughs) Nobody (laughs) talked about it,
2: Um, and um, people, you know, girls who got pregnant as a riddle of sexual assault were sent away. Oh, right. And a lot of them were, um, you know, felt like, oh, I can't get married now because I'm I'm ruined or something like that. So, and
1: adoptions were taboo, and now we've
2: got it's a whole new day, a whole new world. Exactly. So things, it's not that it's happening more now; it's just that we're more willing to talk about it, and ultimately, that's a good thing, even though it seems like, oh, this all this stuff happening.
1: So, working in the area that you work. And um, where do you see that we still need changes in the law that, that where do we need to go from here? What additional things can um, we as lawyers or um, assisting with um, bills in the legislature, where, where do we need to go in terms of um, the future? Well, you know, I think there's actually some really encouraging things um, that are happening.
2: And um, one of those things is the, um, uh, uh, trauma-informed care. And what that is, is it's having an understanding that anytime you provide a service to someone, um, that they may, they may not, it may not be obvious, but it may be that the issue that they have is because of that childhood trauma. And so I saw a number of bills this year that had that, you know, trauma-informed whatever. Okay. Um, and so for instance, when I was a public defender, I learned that a lot of my female clients, especially, but male clients, too, had been victims of sexual assault as a child. And that's why they have a drug addiction problem, for instance. right, And so this has led them directly to becoming involved in the criminal justice system. Or earlier, you were talking about um, sex trafficking. I had a client who was arrested on a drug um, charge, but it turned out she was being sex trafficked. She and a bunch of other women were taken to another state um, and held in a motel. Where they were required to prostitute themselves, Um, and my client told me that one of the girls, you know, the 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 Johns pay the girls directly, but then the girls had to give it to their um, pimp. That one of the girls kept some of the money because she felt like, well, right, (laughs) this is my money (laughs) exactly. (laughs) And what happened was she ended up falling off the balcony of this motel. (gasps) Now nobody saw it happen right but the other girls took that as a warning this is what's going to happen to you um oh my goodness and her child was taken away and put in, in foster care so you see that that when you go back to a lot of behaviors that look like oh this person is acting out they're behaving badly being sexually assaulted is sort of the nexus of how how did this happen um It's true for men as well. And one of the things that, you know, you were citing some statistics, you know, it's generally um, the statistics are that one in three or one in four girls has been sexually assaulted. But a lot of people don't realize that one in five or six boys have been sexually assaulted. Wow. And as hard as it is for girls to talk about sexual assault, it's even harder for boys to talk about sexual assault. Um, And boys tend to, you know, girls tend to turn their anger inwards and blame themselves. and and boys do the same thing too, but a lot of times they're more, because it's more acceptable in our society for boys to be angry and aggressive, they're also sometimes more likely to turn that aggression outward. So again, you can see a boy who's acting, you know, or a young man who's acting in a sort of violent, aggressive way. A lot of times you go back into the history. And and so that's what I found as a public defender. You know, a lot of times people said, oh, how could you go from a victim organization (laughs) to um, being a public defender? And I was like, you know what? I see people on both sides,
1: oh, yeah. um and, and well, it's it's a it's a real problem too, because recognizing abnormal behavior when you're talking about the boys, um, and I've had a couple of um, cases involving uh, church and, you know, basically um, uh, altar boys, et cetera. And one gentleman, it was really, really, really hard for him to share the story. But the story was that, the priest that he was working with would literally would anoint his his um his penis, um with oils and everything, and this was part of like um, the ritual that they would have. And he had this poor child convinced that this was part of what the church did. You know, it was like a, a kind of a, a sexual baptism of sorts. Um, and for most of his life, this poor man now man um, thought that this. This was normal. This was part of of a ritual, but it was also done in secret. This was a secret ritual that only special altar boys, you know, uh, would be so anointed. Um, And just trying to talk about that was so difficult for this gentleman. And then when it came to actually uh, bringing that forward, and I I said, we can bring this forward. Legally, we can bring this forward. And actually, most people don't realize that in Virginia, there is a 20-year statute of limitations for abuse as a child that runs from 20 years from the date to that, a counselor helps you to identify that what happened was sexual abuse. Okay, so that poor man did not realize that this this anointment ceremony, this secret anointment ceremony, was sexual abuse, but through therapy had identified it as this is abnormal behavior. When you're talking about educating these kids Mm -hmm. in the school system, that would have been something that would have been flagged as, oh, maybe this is not normal for somebody to be, you know, uh, touching my private parts and anointing with oil, et cetera, and, and r- rubbing it in an anointment ceremony, um, that is not normal behavior. Um, but, and so you have this, this 20 year uh, time frame now, which is amazing. Um, but then we still have to overcome the hurdle of, okay, the shame of I allowed that to happen to me. Why didn't I realize that was not normal behavior? And, Uh, can I really bring it forward at this point? Because I can't, once you bring a lawsuit, it's no longer private. You know, family's going to know, friends are going to know, et cetera. And then getting over that hump can be really difficult. And so what happens is now we don't hold these perpetrators accountable, um, which is is another issue. So when you hit upon the education piece, and and if we can educate, we can empower, um, we can teach folks that, they do need to speak out. And that's the wonderful thing about the Me Too movement, too, is, is that people are feeling that sense of empowerment. Um, so, Valerie, before we close out the show, are there any other examples or things that you're seeing in the sexual assault arena in what you do that you'd like our listeners to know about?
2: Well, I really think that um, have, just having that awareness that when you're talking to someone, um, chances are, uh, you know, like I always think about this when I'm in a room uh, giving a talk, for instance, that chances are um, up to a third of the people in that room um, have been victims of sexual assault. And um, so what I want to be able to do is speak respectfully of those people. Right. Um, And I think that, you know, when we go around in our daily lives and we're talking about these issues, you know, sometimes we talk about them in ways that are angry or disrespectful to the victims or um, make assumptions about things and realize that the person you're talking to may be a victim and they may be— being re-traumatized right at that moment in the way that you're speaking about it. So think, you know, have some thought about that. Have some thought about how people are acting in ways that may not make sense to you. And maybe the reason that
1: they're behaving in that way may be because of this. Right. So this has been wonderful. We've had Valerie LaRue of the Virginia Poverty Law Center and join my former law partner, Mike Phelan, next week for exploding e-cigs and other product liability matters. Thanks for joining us.